Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry P. Arne joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. Also at the Hillsdale College Podcast Network, check out the radio-free Hillsdale Hour, the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, the Larry P. Arn Show, and more, all at podcast.hillsdale.edu. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue is about to commence. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are found at the Hillsdale Podcast Network. If you can't remember that, you're a Steelers fan or or you you went to the University of Michigan, head over to iTunes and Google Hillsdale at iTunes. It'll get you to the Hillsdale Dialogues. But you do want to find the Hillsdale Podcast Network and all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. My guest today is Dr. Larry Arn, who reproached me last week for calling him the greatest living Churchill scholar. Let me say the equal, then, of any Churchill scholar living. Uh, And we are talking about this book. I've got the Bloomsbury edition, Winston Churchill, The World Crisis, volume 1911 and 1914. I'm going to ask Dr. Have you got a volume handy, Dr. Arn? I do. Uh, Could you read the last two paragraphs of this chapter, which makes a theme from last week, very relevant to how we adopt our discussion of this week. But I'd like you to read them. They're, they're magnificent and, I think, great summary paragraphs. Okay. For consider these ships, so vast in themselves, yet so small, so easily lost sight on the surface of the waters, sufficient at the moment we trusted for their task, but yet only a score or so. They were all we had. On them, as we conceived, floated the might, majesty, dominion, and power of the British Empire. All our long history built up century after century, all our great affairs in every part of the globe, all the means of livelihood and safety of our faithful, industrious, active population depended upon them. Open the seacocks and let them sink beneath the surface, as another fleet was one day to do at another British harbor, far to the north. And in a few minutes, half an hour at the most, the whole outlook of the world would be changed. The British Empire would dissolve like a dream, each isolated community struggling forward by itself. The central power of union broken, mighty provinces, whole empires in themselves, driftingly, drifting hopelessly out of control and falling a prey to strangers. And Europe, after one sudden convulsion, passing into the iron grip and rule of the Teuton and of all the Teutonic system meant. They would be only left far off across the Atlantic, unarmed, unready, and as yet uninstructed America to maintain single-handedly law and freedom among men. Guard them well, admirals and captains, hardy tars and tall marines. Guard them well and guide them true. No wonder the man won a Nobel laureate for literature. Isn't that good? (laughs) uh, You know, he... he, uh, 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 an aside to appreciate writing, uh, I, stu- I studied Shakespeare several classes with Professor Jaffa, and he just loved Shakespeare. Uh, he, he, he was a literature major at Yale in undergraduate school, and in one way always missed that. And so what we would do back in the day was, you know, we were using phonograph records, 
and they had the kind where you could pick up the needle and stay in the same place. And Macbeth is about to destroy Duncan, his house guest, to get his job in his house, creeps into his chamber to stab him to death. And he imagines the angels above crying out against the deed and the demons below calling for the blood of Duncan. Macbeth does this, and Professor Jaffa picks up the needle and says, does this man not live in a richly populated moral universe? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a device here, a literary device. Guard them well, admirals and captains, hardy tars and tall marines. Guard them well and guide them true. He's talking to them, but he's also instructing us by talking to them. It's a literary device. And what, th- what that means, by the way, is that he saw things in dimensions like these. He, when, when it, this is, you know, one of the greatest books of history written, in my opinion, and arguably Churchill's best. There's a competitor, too. But he, he's telling you how he sees all this. And it's, he's a big man. At the time that he's writing this, his career is in one of several interregnum that it had because he lost his job in the middle of the of the First World War and it nearly killed him, and literally because he went and fought in the trenches and that was very dangerous. And then he was sort of on the road to recovery. This book is an explanation of what he did. And the reasons he did it are, he, he describes them in, with such beauty and strength, right? So the horror of the trenches and the incredible cost that they imposed on the country, so much by the time the Second World War was over that they compromised the power of Britain as he predicted they would. Well, this is the opposite sentiment. Look at the things that save. Look how beautiful they are. Look, look what they protect. And then it comes down to those people on those ships, those men, and guard them well. You see, that's... that that. There's a world of understanding that leads to the conclusions that Churchill drew and the actions he took. And he's just very good at understanding the causes of his actions and explaining them to us, which is... And and I'm in awe of the art. There's something, a trick he does here. It's three-dimensional. Horizontally, he's looking back in time, as you did last week, to the Armada and, and forward to the present day. That's a horizontal view. He's talking vertically as well about sinking, pulling the seacocks, which I have no idea what those are, but it's obviously a hole in the bucket, and down go the ships. And, and so that's a vertical descent of the ships to the bottom. It, are they sunk in Scapa flow, the German Navy? Is it in Scapa? Yep. So he's, he's calling to mind the vertical descent of the ships lost at sea. And then he's talking of no dimension whatsoever into the future, to these future mariners. It's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting aside that you call attention to. Uh, so we've learned in the chapters we've read so far the fear, anxiety that was caused in Britain by the growth of the German Navy. And he will talk about it at length when they finally conquer Germany. And they don't just sink the German Navy somewhere in the North Sea. They take it up to the north of Scotland, near the British, the main port of the British Navy, 
and they sink it there. Why did they do I mean, we'll get to that. I, I have no idea why they did it there. I've always thought, wouldn't that kind of create a bumpy situation and for submarines and all that kind of stuff? It's a deep. It's very deep. You know, the, uh, you, you live on the ocean, right? Yes. It's very big. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> you know, but my late, late friend, Bill Rusher, who was one of the founders of National Review magazine, came to work for me at the end and, uh, of his life and lived in San Francisco. And, uh, and he had a friend who'd never seen the Pacific come across to visit him, an old man. And so he walks him out to Presidio and looks out on the Pacific. And they stand there in silence for a minute. And then the man says, funny, I thought it'd be bigger. <laughs> You know, I just I just finished rereading American Caesar uh, about Douglas MacArthur, and one of the comments made is Americans had trouble. They understood what was going on in Europe, but they had no idea what was going on in the Pacific because it was so doggone big. They had no idea what was happening wherever. <laughs> Forever large, yeah. Yeah, now Scapaflow is a big place. And see, it's an interesting thing, right, that that, you know, because that's the scene of action is the English Channel and the North Sea. That's what has to be defended. And for strategic and tactical reasons, they base the fleet at the opposite end of the British Isles. And that's a long way. The British Isles are not very long, but they stretch out, you know, th through the islands north of Scotland, way up there, right? Yep. And that was because they could protect them. And that meant that uh, they thought, when we're, if we have the right ships, and enough of them, and they did. When we're at sea, we're invulnerable. We don't want to be attacked, you know, when we're refitting and when we're laid up and all of that. So they took them way away. In, in segment three, we're going to talk about how the French and the British divided up the, the oceans and how that led inexorably to war. But you have to wait two segments. We're going to come right back and talk about that line about the Teuton spirit. Because and all that that meant, because it's it's really something, and it's it's in the middle of a beautiful grass. So I want the doctor uh, Aaron's commentary on on what that what Churchill intends to convey. Stay tuned, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener supported. That means we hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Uh, we went from four admirals last week to right now we're just standing the first half of this Hillsdale Dialogue. And all Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at hillsdale.edu and the Hillsdale Podcast Network. I, I would, uh, we're spending a lot of time on two paragraphs, but they're pregnant. Dr. Arn, the iron grip and rule of the Teuton and all that the Teutonic system meant. What does that mean? What did Churchill mean by that in 1923? Because it would then surface again in 1939. Well, there's a the Ger- Churchill regarded the Germans. First of all, he regarded them as a great people, something powerful and great to contribute to everything, to economics, to culture, to civilization, and they have very often in their History, you know, first first of all, history. Germany is a United Nation, the German Empire. It was called originally. That's new, right? That's from the 1870s, and so it's not a very old country. That thing, and Churchill regarded it as a great thing when it was united under Bismarck. But uh, just uh, you know, every people has vulnerabilities. Today, we all in the Western world, we all seem to have the same way one. We want to reduce everything to expertise. Well, the Germans were given to that early, and that meant everything has got to be organized, and everything is for the nation, and science is the great thing. The professional classes are powerful there. And Churchill thought that the Germans were guilty of putting up with that too much. I think the Americans are, too, by the way, which means I'm not making any national criticism of the Germans. He did say in the Second World War, those brave, in a, in a speech, you know, when the Germans were threatening under Hitler before the war started, he said, those brave, loyal German people at your throat or at your feet. Huh. <laughs> so, and they were too willing to put up with stuff out of their government, which is something I fear we're falling prey to, too. They're also astonishingly stubborn. I mean, von Turpitz, about whom I should read so, at, at length, um, he writes, it is astonishing that Admiral von Turpitz should never have comprehended what the consequences of his German naval policy would be. And, and he refers to him as a proud Prussian at one point. I, I don't know any German Germans. You know, I am of partial German descent and German Catholic descent, and they're stubborn people. But I just don't know any of the German Germans like von Turpitz or this whole Prussian caste. And the, the Nazis were not of that caste. They commanded them in the German in the Wehrmacht, but they are th- th- these Prussians are proud. Yeah, well, that's, and, they, you know, they won that, right? They're the strongest of the German states, and they played a big part in the, in the wars of Frederick the Great and in the part, big part in the wars of Napoleon. And so they've got things to be proud about, and they're mighty. There's a wonderful description of... Uh, in August 1914, a great book by Solzhenitsyn. Oh, yes. One of his knots of history, he says, where you can see big things come together. And he gives a, a description of the way Germany looked to the invading Russian soldiers. And it looked rich and orderly. And they're going mostly through farmland. And it looks well-appointed and everything in its place. 
it's a very mighty country, and it's beautiful. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I had not thought about this. Churchill, the great statesman, and Solzhenitsyn, the great poet of the last century, both focus on 1914. I mean, they both that powers of concentration focused on 1914 and the events leading up to it. Yeah, that's right. That's when the world fell apart. And later, Churchill would render a judgment. Churchill had warned about all this stuff. And so I guess he went through several modes in figuring out about world war. First of all, precociously in 1901, he predicted it in principle before then. And then he turned his mind to other things. He gives a record of that in this book that we're reading. Uh, And then what comes upon him is an emergency. The Germans might come and attack us and overcome our Navy and then it's just a matter of time until their army overwhelms our army. And he sees, now that's an emergency. And he's yeah. just thinking about that. we got to get ready for that. The only way to stop it is to get ready. But if it comes, we need to win, right? And so that's a mode. And, and that's where a, we're going in the next segment. We're going to go to the German naval law. we got a minute left here. Do you want to tell them what the navy laws of Germany were? Well, One were. minute went through the parliament, went through the German legislature, and it, how many ships are we going to build and how are we going to pay for them? And because that was, uh, it was not, uh, it was not like Hitler, where one guy carried around all the decisions with him. It was a constitutional monarchy. And that meant that they did a lot of things in public. And he tells in this chapter about how, you know, the British, and Churchill was much behind it, very much in favor of it, they went to the Germans and talked to them, and they got a preview of the German Navy law, and it made the German Navy much bigger. And much more of a threat. When we come back, how to respond to a threat. Not the way we're responding to China, that's for sure. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dr. Lerner, and we'll be right back. America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu, including your application if you want to join. What are your colors at Hillsdale, Dr. Arn? Are they blue and white? Blue and white. If you want to join the mighty blue and white line at Hillsdale, go get your application because they are somewhat overwhelmed with those. Not surprisingly, people want to go to a college, not to an uh, indoctrination center. So they're going there. Dr. Arn, on page 70 on mine, a great letter from Jackie Fisher, the admiral we talked about last week and we will talk about a lot, writes to Churchill on February 1912, um, for God's sake, trample on and stamp out protected cruisers and hurry up aviation. Uh, <laughs> he's, he really knows which way the wind is going with the, with the armament, but it takes a long time to build one of these ships. And Churchill got the got the reins in 1911. How did he respond, in your estimate, to the German Navy law that they knew was coming, but they couldn't disclose? Because, incredibly to me, the Kaiser told the, Ger- the Brits what he wanted. That's right. And, you uh, and you know, that's because, by the way, the, the Brits reached out. Let's find a way to mitigate this, right? We don't, none of us wants this, right? You don't, you don't need the expense, and we don't need it either. But if you go this way... 
we have to respond because this is life and death to us, whereas Churchill would always say and says many times in this book, it's a luxury to you. So they're trying to forestall that, right? And then your question is, how did Churchill respond? How did Britain respond? Well, they, they, they redesigned the British Navy, and they built more. And they did both those things. And so they did them at incredible speed by today's standards. Uh, Churchill takes the job in 1911, and by 1914, the fleet is substantially redesigned, and the numbers are improved. And they're ready. So, I mean, they really, and Churchill in the next chapter, which I really like because it, it, it's a display of what you have to do if you're a statesman at work. It's easy to think that all they do is give speeches, but what they do is make judgments, and they don't make them by themselves. It takes a lot of people, but they lead the making of the judgments, and if they're good at it, the judgments tend to be better. And so they, they, you know, they had to not only match the numbers, they wanted to improve the quality of the individual ships and therefore the flotillas, the ships cooperating with each other, so that in a battle they could beat them. And that's not a thing that you can, uh, you know, like they made the ships a lot faster and they figured out a way to do that. And, and the rough way they did it was they uh, put bigger guns on them, which then paradoxically delivered much, much greater weight of shell and more accurately. But because of that, they didn't need as many of them. And the space they saved, then they converted the ships to oil, which is just much better from every point of view, although Britain now had to secure oil supplies from around the world. And they had all the gold they could ever need, and still have, just not can't use it anymore. So they went into this, this Navy law provoked in Britain. It intensified. Britain had become worried about Germany. And Churchill describes the things that happened in 1911 that led him to his worries, and that's leading others at the same time. He was one of the first. Uh, and so now they've got the structure. What are the Germans doing? And they told them. And it looked to Britain very aggressive. And they thought, we have to respond to this. And they, they did. They, they didn't just size up the British Navy. There was a change in strategy and a change in uh, 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 the design of the ships. And the strategic change, you mentioned it a little earlier, uh, they basically abandoned the standard that, that they would depend they would defend all of the key places key to Britain in the world by themselves. They left the Mediterranean largely to the French. Which and created was, an obligation, did it not, in nineteen fourteen? That's right. And you know they and they, they and see just think of the decisions that had to be made to make that seem like a good idea. Because this argument that I said Arthur Wilson was a, a factor in and differed from Churchill that we should put major forces on the continent with France, well, by then they had decided to do that. And once they decided to do that, then that liberated them, they thought, uh, to rely on the French in the Mediterranean and concentrate their fleet closer. Now, the Britain has important things in the Mediterranean, right? They have Gibraltar, which Spain complains about to this day, and they have Suez, 
and they have other things along the way on the north coast of Africa. And, and so they, you know, they need to be in the Mediterranean. And, you know, later in the Second World War, the first, the first, the, the first big battles that Britain had with the Germans were in North Africa, and they lost them for a long time. And then they won at Alamein, and they really basically never lost again. So that's very important, and they seeded that, right? That's a strategic move that involves a diplomatic alliance that becomes fundamental to British security. Now, this old enemy, France, we are going to pledge our future to cooperation with them. And they could not leave the French alone at the start of the war, even though there was a party in the cabinet, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that wanted nothing to do with war, uh, the the uh, liberal non-interventionists, but they had told the French, we've got your back, meaning the North Coast, the North Sea, and, and the, the Channel ports on, on the French side, and Churchill, we can't screw them, we can't abandon them. Now, Dr. Arn, what I'm thinking about as I'm reading Chapter 5 is that China has embarked on this massive Navy buildup, the largest in history. It dwarfs the German Navy law, it dwarfs the United Kingdom's response, and it is called forth AUKUS, the Australian-UK-US alliance in the South Pacific, primarily submarines, but also other things. And we want India in it, too, because every action that is appropriately dealt with calls forth a reaction. But the difference is we're not building the ships that Churchill built. That's right. Yeah. You, you know, in the end, you start, like, the chain. I'll anticipate the next chapter a little bit, which I happen to like a lot. They found a way to make the ships faster, but that came down to a, a judgment about a way a, particular, a, a big naval battle would unfold. And they thought, if we've got a fast unit, several ships that are just faster than the Germans, we can, you know, the, a big naval battle, uh, uh, you know, it's only at the Battle of Midway, by the way, that there was ever, and that's in 1942, there's ever a naval battle where the ships didn't come in sight of each other. That's the first time, yep. Yeah, but before that, uh, the ships would end up getting in a line opposite each other and pound the heck out of each other with their broadsides because you can bring more guns to bear sideways than you can straight on. And for the benefit of the Steelers fan, the best thing in the world is to cross the T, which That's means right. all of your guns go right across. You're the top of the T, and they're the long line. And all of your guns just march across and destroy their fleet. That's and they right. can only fire forward, which is nothing. Uh, yeah. And that happened at the Battle of Leyte Gulf for the last time, given aviation. But that's not known in 1911. That's right. And, uh, well, they, uh, that's right. Uh, the... the they didn't understand. Well, there, there weren't really very many military airplanes. In the First World War, there were some. And Churchill had been flying. You know, he risked his life because he's an adventurer, learning to fly and flying a lot. And he was up there one time. Martin Gilbert told me this story. I don't have a source from it except this conversation. But Martin Gilbert told me that they were up there and they got next to some birds. And then Churchill said, hey, we could shoot these birds. And then he thought, hey, we could fight up here. <laughs> <laughs> Ding, bingo. When we come back, the consequence of that uh, is next chapter. But we're going to talk a little bit about here what they built and how that mattered. The submarine is beginning to appear. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue arrives right after this. Hey there, I'm Scott Bertram, and I'm the director of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. This show and all the other shows on the network are listener-supported That means we 
hope for, we count on, frankly, we rely on the support of listeners like you to make our educational outreach possible. One of the best and most convenient ways to do so is joining the Liberty and Learning Society. That's our exclusive monthly giving group. And in this month of March, we are looking for 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society. When you join, you'll help defend liberty through education, and you'll make shows like this one possible far into the future. All you have to do is visit hillsdale.edu slash monthly and complete the secure online donation form. If you need to pause or stop your gift at some point, no problem. Just call us. One of our friendly students or staff will help you. But today, will you be one of the 300 new members of the Liberty and Learning Society in March? Go to hillsdale.edu slash monthly to join the Liberty and Learning Society today. Help us bring these shows to you and other Americans at hillsdale.edu slash monthly. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Arn, the submarine changed everything in World War II. But Jackie Fisher is warning about it on 25 February 1912. So they began to understand, indeed, the U-boat would, would imperil and indeed brought America into the war, didn't it? Oh, yeah. That, uh, you know, the uh, there's a lot of talk of submarines lately, by the way, because we, apparently we still have a big advantage in submarines over the Correct. Chinese, whereas yeah. they outnumber us in other forms of naval warfare. But they were important in the First World War, and they were almost decisive in the Second World War. Uh, Churchill said that, uh, in retrospect, the air battles in the Second World War, the Blitz and all that, that that didn't really ever threaten the life of Britain. But the submarine warfare did, because they just had to have just tons of, millions of tons of stuff coming into Britain all the time. For one thing, because it has to import a lot of its food, but now weapons too, right? And they were losing tonnage at a rate that if it kept up, then Britain would start running out of stuff. As would Stalin. Stalin didn't have the military. It was all convoys. We sent him everything. That's right. Yeah, and that that was, uh, the, I think I mentioned it last time, but uh, on Apple TV there's that great movie Greyhound. Oh, I love that film. Yeah. That's Tom a Hanks. remake. That's a film made from a book by C.S. Forster, who wrote the Hornblower novels, called The Good Shepherd, and that book is riveting reading. And, uh, and it shows what it took to get those ships across, and they lost a lot. But gradually... They, you know, first of all, anti-submarine warfare was one of the decisive things they could find them, sonar. But, uh, you know, and sonar, you see in that book and in that movie, sonar is not fully reliable, but it helps. And then more ships, and then, you know, the casualty rates of the German submarine force in the Second World War were astronomical. I mean, they just basically nearly all were killed. I want to make sure that I include in this, and we only have five minutes left, Churchill writes about the Irish turmoil and the need for his mind to leave that behind and skip over it. It had been all-consuming. So the mark of a great statesman is, that's a crisis over there, but I can't do that now. I have to do this one over here. And he just switches. Yeah. it. Uh, that's so, so, and remember, all of this stuff happens 
these are some of the biggest events in history. And when we look back on them and know how they came out, we have to remember that they didn't know that, and they almost didn't come out that way. And all these anxious, energetic preparations that Churchill describes in this first book, that's one of the reasons they came out this way. Uh, the, the, if we do, the, if we do this, the Second World War, if we do that book, we'll see that it's similar, right? In, from 1911 to 1914, Churchill became a force to restructure and grow the British Navy. Similarly, through the 1930s, we have to build more airplanes. And those speeches and that, he, he built a national movement called the Focus to agitate for more military, more, more airplanes in particular, but more military spending generally. And, and we'll see that in 1940, there was just enough and just barely enough. And, but for that, and that goes back to a point that's in this chapter that we were reading, that these decisions that are made in politics years in advance, Churchill keeps saying, he compares them several times, it's as important as the outcome of a major battle because it will decide those, help to decide those future major battles. But we that, don't have you know, that, you know, I, I hate to be dour at the end of the hour, uh, but we don't have that focus now. And the idea that we are in any way seriously preparing for conflict with the uh, the Xi Jinping-led CCP, it's silly. We're trying. Gallagher and a few Democrats and Cotton and a few Republicans and Democrats in the, are trying, but nobody is listening. Yeah, well, I don't know. We And see, uh, a great thing about reading history is that uh, if you know, uh, like it's it's easy to think that the conditions are not, as they were, you know, I, I don't think America is as healthy a country as it was in the 1980s, or Britain was in the first decade of the 20th century. But I don't really know that. And I know that uh, Leighton in us has been, from time, for as long as there's been a country, is great strength. And it's hard to predict what's going to happen, right? And that's, there's comfort in that, right? It's uh, better that you can't know. And uh, so what you do is do your best every day according to the light that you've got. But hope is not a strategy. That's why we do the Hillsdale Dialogue, so that in place of hope you put history and learn from it. Dr. Larry Arn, thank you. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. And all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are at the Hillsdale Podcast Network. And if you're desperate and you forgot all those things, just go to iTunes and type in Hillsdale and you'll find at least these conversations. Next week, some update on current controversies, followed by Chapters 6 and 7. So get yourself Volume 1 of the great World Crisis, the World Crisis Volume 1. We'll be there for a while and with great purpose and effect. Thank you, America. Thank you, Dwayne, Adam, and Harley. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.